Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode five of the Gotta Be Gaming podcast. I'm your host, Aaron. And before I introduce my co-host tonight, I need to tell you about some changes to the show and what you're going to hear in future episodes. Unfortunately, the desire that my co-host Steven and I had to review one new and one older game each week quickly has proven to be unsustainable. There simply just are not enough hours for each of us to complete two games, new games, every week, and we really just didn't want to promise something that we couldn't deliver. And so the format of the show is going to change slightly. Additionally, Steven is not going to be continuing as a regular co-host. His gaming habits are a bit less mainstream than mine, we discovered, and since I intend to cover as many new releases as possible, regardless of platform, on this podcast, it does not make sense for him to be here on every single episode. How is the show going to differ? Well, I'm glad that you asked. The new version of Gotta Be Gaming podcast will center around myself and a rotation of guest co-hosts. And many of these people will be fellow film critics, game streamers, will have previous video making experience, etc. All of them are knowledgeable, well-spoken, and most of all, excited to talk with me about the games that we're playing each and every week. While every single week won't feature a discussion about a brand new release, we will discuss as many of those as possible and hit all the big ones. We'll also be having some conversation about news, games announcements, and other big topics around the industry. Lastly, while our normal episode flow will feature spoiler-free talk, we may drop additional spoiler conversation at the very end of an episode for those that have beaten a game and want to hear us go more in-depth. That's the plan, at least, and we're going to give that a whirl tonight. As always, please give us the grace to be flexible. Let us know what you like and what you don't, and we'll provide you the most entertaining content that we can. Now, without further rambling, I am excited to introduce my co-host for this episode, Paul Carlson. Hiya. Hey, Paul. Welcome. I am so, so glad that you are here to talk FF7 with me tonight. But real quick, why don't you tell everybody where you're from, what your gaming interests are, just introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, let's see here. I'm a kind of a child of the 80s NES era, <laughs> Seattle area born. That means, you know, we got like Pink Gorilla, retro gaming. I'm big into that. But I grew up, you know, I remember getting my first Nintendo and Final Fantasy VII was a huge part of that. So, you know, the kind of games I'm into, I, as I thought about them, I'm like, it's mostly RPGs because I play a lot of uh, RPGs in Pokemon, which is, I guess, an RPG. I don't know. Oh, but. definitely. Definitely counts as an RPG. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. I'm a big RPG guy, too, as well. And so I think that's going to be really, really good for this episode in particular. But first things first, before we get to this week's big one, we are going to talk a little bit about what else we've been playing. And so let's get to that. All right, Paul. So you mentioned you love RPGs, and obviously both of us have spent the vast majority of our recent hours in Final Fantasy VII. We'll we'll talk when we get to the section about just how much, just how recent, <laughs> in fact, your hours in Final Fantasy VII have been. Because oh, it's, it's pretty entertaining. But uh, and I think listeners will find that pretty fun. But other than Final Fantasy VII, and you can go back a little ways if you need to prior to its release, what have you been playing recently, man? 
Uh, lately, I've been playing uh, a, a game that I kind of picked up a few years ago. I got 40 hours into Persona 5, but then Royal dropped. Oh, yes. So now I'm back into that, and I'm looking down the barrel of 100-plus hours. It's overwhelming. It's, I'm getting overwhelmed again, but I have committed I need to get this thing done because it just seems like this is my Mount Everest of RPGs right now. It is very... Did you play Fire Emblem Three Houses by chance? No, I haven't got that one yet. So it's about an 80-ish hour experience, and it felt like it. I mean, I remember putting in so much time to that last summer. And yeah, like you said, Persona 5 Royal is 120 hours estimated is what people are saying. And I, too, have dove back in. It's funny that you said that because I went and looked at my previous save file for Persona 5 as well before I picked this one up and I was 40 hours roughly into it too. And and I thought I had to think long and hard because I was like, man, is it really worth it? But I can tell you already, I feel like it's worth it. I'm about 20 or so hours into this new one before FF seven hit. And I had to put it on the shelf, which I know you did as well. Um, I may end up having you back on to talk about persona five Royal eventually, like a year from now when we both finish it, <laughs> we oh, can yeah. hold each other accountable for climbing this mountain. Well, what else have you been playing? Uh, as I've noted before, I am a big Pokemon guy. Uh, I have every, I played every single Pokemon game, not just red and red or blue, red and blue, uh, silver and gold. So now I'm playing sword on Switch. So I'm just kind of plunking along. I mean, it's kind of just what I'm into. It's what I'm known for. All my friends. How far into that one are you? I've beaten the mainline story. So now it's just a matter, you get to a point where you just start trying to catch them all. That's that's the never ending the the, her, the finish line that keeps getting moved because they mm-hmm. keep adding new Pokemon. So it'll take a while. It always does. Yeah. So it's just it's a collection sim at this point. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they make them very difficult. Like, oh, you got to have this thing. It's a whole thing. But you can only catch this one on certain days of the week. All right. Are you pretty high on Pokemon Sword and Shield? Do you think that it was a worthy first kind of big console version of the game oh yeah it's definitely it's what you wanted when you thought of what this would look like on a big like on a ma- major console not your handheld device I'm, from a play mechanic i still prefer uh alpha sapphire uh and ruby wherever that was omega ruby from a few years back a couple generations ago uh, pokemon people always have preferences i like this generation or that generation i liked that particular pair uh sapphire and ruby but this one's great. I mean, it's right up there with it. What mechanically is different that sticks out? Uh, trying to think. Well, because it's a handheld device, I was able to do a lot of things just by uh, my using my walking ability, and I would be able to amp up and power up my Pokemon based on how much I walked. So that was a huge part of my life. I would go on a walk at lunch. Oh, so like a Pokemon Go kind of thing, like a pedometer. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then the more I walked, I could power up my Pokemon for longer. So, I mean, it's one of those things that you never think of. Like, I can't put my Switch in my back pocket. Right. Whereas I put my DS in my pocket, and boom, I have 10,000 steps. And I can I can breed Pokemon faster. They are more powerful. I can earn more money. You can do a lot of things just by walking. Interesting. That's pretty yeah. cool. I didn't know that you could do that on the DS versions. I remember the pedometer function, though, because I when I would walk around packs, I remember two or so different packs that I used to play these little nintendo mini games that they had on the home screen that relied on walking and that was kind of like your key thing and boy during packs i would get 
you know, just tens and tens of thousands of steps, and it was always awesome. So that would have been like the perfect time to carry around a Pokemon game oh, in yeah. my pocket. If had I known, go figure. Well, anything else or just the two big RPGs? Those are both pretty big time sinks. I mm-hmm. mean, I I think I put a thousand hours into one set of Pokemon pair games a few years ago. So I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, I can complain about how big Persona Five is, but I put weeks into some of the previous games. So those are. T- I mean, I like to play other SNES games, like not just the classic, but an actual old school Super Nintendo. Oh. And hook it up to my system and play old games. I mean, but those are easy comparatively. You could beat one of those in a few hours usually. What? Really? Yeah, you could beat Legend of Zelda. I was, I remember way back in the day, I was kind of, <laughs> I was kind of like a really amateur level speedrunner. Like I would, I, before oh. it became a thing, I would play, I would sit down, like, okay, I'm going to beat Zelda. I'm going to try to beat it in three and a half hours today from beginning to end. Just sit down, play it all the way through. Okay. Well, I was a little bit slower. What did I do? Yeah, it was one of those things before speedrunning was a thing. I was kind of doing it on a really low level without even thinking about it. But yeah, some of these games you can, yeah, they might be longer, but like you can't beat Chrono Trigger in a setting unless you're a professional. But yeah, a lot of them you can beat in a few hours usually. Interesting. So are you playing any of those right now on the side doing that for streaming or? Yeah, I'm trying to do Illusion, uh, Illusion of Gaia, which is a game I never played, mm-hmm. which a friend recommended to me. So I'm like, okay, well, there's a completely new experience. Now that's taking me longer because I don't know where I'm going. I'm just like, oh, you know, it's a brand new experience, which is fun because it's a 30 year old system. It's not often you get a brand new experience. Right. Is it now, is it an and, action RPG like the Secret of Mana games? Yeah, it is very much action RPG. I mean, I prefer Secret of Mana at this point. I mean, that is when you think about action rpg is probably the best action rpg on the super nintendo i mean because i would consider chrono trigger not to be action even though it has a lot of action elements you know uh, secret of mana is definitely action based yeah definitely so well that's that's cool man um and that and i know we're gonna mention this later in the show but you do do a lot of streaming and all of these games at one point or another make it onto your stream where do you do that i'm gonna have you tell people now Oh yeah, definitely. I'm on Twitch at Escape into Gaming. And then you're, is... you're also on Facebook because I keep getting notifications. So I liked your Facebook gaming page and I, I'm trying to figure out how this works. Does it like automatically turn on when you go live on Twitch? Yeah, I can actually uh, publish and stream to two different outlets, one Twitch and one Facebook. I started the Facebook thing only because honestly, everything going on, I just wanted a place to where I didn't have to think or see anything. I just wanted to game part of this whole thing why i'm back in the stream and just into gaming in general is i don't want to have to deal with anything life is already stressful enough this is a place where i could just play a game kind of go into that world for a bit and come back yeah but yeah i mean i could publish right to facebook it just automatically dynamically does it which is great it is great because i don't know why but like that's a lot easier for me than going on to twitch to watch you and so i will get those notifications and i frequently we'll just i'm so in fact sometimes i'll do it by accident because i'm so used to just looking at my facebook notifications in general that i'll just see one and i'll click it and boom your stream comes up and then like i'm i'm locked in because i want to see what you're doing and i want to see what you're fighting and you're really good about describing even when there's not people in the chat to talk to you're just really good about like describing your actions and talking us through what's going on in your head especially when you're playing all these rpgs so 
people, I definitely recommend you check out Paul's channel. You said Escape Into Gaming is your Twitch channel, right? Escape Into yeah. Gaming. And I think it's P. Nikki's Gaming Experience or something on Facebook. P. Yeah, P. Nikki Gaming Therapy. P. Nikki Gaming Therapy. So give Paul a follow. Check him out when he's streaming some of these RPGs because it is definitely worth a watch. It's good to see him work through some of the decision making, like when he's playing FF7 and he's like, hmm, and he'll pause and he'll talk through it very, very much like a streamer should. So definitely recommend that. Well, I have been, FF7 obviously has taken over our lives for the last <laughs> several days. Um, because it just came out last Thursday night at 9 p.m. Pacific time, our time. So little less than 24 hours ago. And we both have just powered through it as much as we can, both with full-time jobs still. <laughs> and one of yeah. us, you with a toddler. So, um, it's been, it's been a power thing. But other than that, I have maintained my every single day logging into Animal Crossing since its release. I'm very proud Whoa. of it. Yep. Nice. Today, I actually logged in about 4 p.m. for the first time, and I think it was the first day that I ever logged in after noon for the first time. Um, so that was pretty impressive. Um, it is getting to the point I need to like put a chunk of time in because I've kind of been in, I quote unquote beat the game, right? You can advance your town to the point where this event happens and you roll credits. And then it's a never ending game, of course, because it's a life sim. And so I have just been in maintenance mode. So I get on and I do my chores and I get off because I've got to play FF7. So I'm looking forward to being able to now do some of these town remodeling ideas that I've had in my head <laughs> for weeks. I've been like, I need to move this grove of trees, but I just don't have the time. You know, yeah. like I've got to just and there. I'm so glad that this bunny event is over, Paul. I <laughs> I've heard nothing but terrible things about it. Man, if you were avoiding animal crossing for the last week or so you know you are probably blessed because the way they did this very first event it sounded really cool on paper this easter bunny comes on day one and he's like hey there's eggs everywhere go find them it's like an easter egg hunt right cool that's gonna be neat but the problem is there were six different types of eggs you could find them in your trees you could find them in fish you could find them uh, like where your fossils would be on the ground hidden in the ground in rocks, like in the sky. And, <laughs> and what happened is they were nonstop. Like at one point into the event, Nintendo actually nerfed the egg rate of appearance because people were complaining so much because you couldn't get your actual resources. Like I, I couldn't fish for almost a week, which was maddening. Like I just wanted to go catch the new fish, but everything I caught was a flipping egg and it just was driving people nuts. And so I think that there's some tweaking to be done. And, you know, what is encouraging to me from this event is while it was not the best experience overall, that Nintendo responded. And yeah. Nintendo is never really – they're starting to do this for the first time ever. They're starting to listen to their fans and their communities. And I just – I'm super encouraged by that for the future. So hoping that they take this feedback on board and that now that they have the ability to put these push these dynamic events into the Animal Crossing world for years to come, they will we can grow and, you know, tweak them a little bit, make them shorter or make, you know, make it we want a world where we can go on and still play our Animal Crossing if we want and we want to, we we want a way to just ignore events but also participate in them if we so choose. I think kind of that that's the happy medium. 
but yeah, it was, uh, it was an event for sure. And, uh, and I, I, mean, I did everything cause that's what I do. And I got all my Easter egg stuff and now it's in storage. <laughs> that's what exactly what happens. Oh, I, I mean, just want to get to a place where I can do log in every day because that's just, I was, yeah, too many things. It is. It's to, I, I prioritize it. Um, and it works out well for me. Uh, a couple other things. One I want to mention is Mike, uh, not Microsoft, uh, NBA 2K20. So if you're an NBA 2K20 fan or player, then you probably already know this, but they put out, uh, these my team cards all the time, these locker codes for chances to get elite players and cool cards. Well, the other day they put out a special Kobe card and they gave it to everybody as a freebie. And so if you haven't logged in, you should definitely do this. I'm bringing this up because obviously uh, Kobe Bryant passed away earlier this year, tragically with his daughter and several others in a helicopter accident. Um, he's my favorite player of all time. And so it hit me particularly hard. I actually was in a movie, Paul. I, it was during the lead up to the Oscars and the theaters were doing those recaps where they played all of the best picture nominees again. And since you and I always go to film screenings because we're both film critics, I had, I don't usually see movies outside of the film screenings, but I wanted to go back and see Ford v. Ferrari with my kids. And so I took them and the movie ended and we like the credits come up and my buddy starts checking his watch, his Apple watch. And he's like, dude, what the heck's going on? And my phone is blowing up when I turn it back on. And there's oh, no. all, all of our notifications. It happened while we were in the movie. And if you've seen that movie, you know how that movie ends. And it was like just this most surreal, awful experience. So anyway, I digress. I'm, I'm going to get myself sad, but uh, they have a Kobe card. So I was super stoked. I got this Kobe card. And I'm why am I bringing this up? People are like, why are you talking about this? This is one card in this whole gigantic game of NBA 2K. Here's the thing. This card can't dunk. And my friends and I have found it hilarious. And I think it's actually coded into this card. So it's a late era Kobe you know, it's like a number 24, he's bald, so he's clearly, like, the end of his career. Yeah, tail end. But it's like a 96 overall card. I mean, it's it's an elite, elite card. And so you would assume, I mean, it's not like Kobe couldn't dunk. Even when he was old, he could dunk. I intentionally got breakaways with this card. I literally stood underneath the rim with nobody around me, and I would try to dunk. And this card will, like, he'll go up and he'll, like, awkwardly make a layup. I mean, they'll always go in. Every single layup would go in, but like his arms would go in weird positions. And I was like, dunk the ball, dude. And I, I really think that 2K is, is trolling us. Like, I think that it's a joke, you know, against his athleticism and how he kind of lost a step as he got older and people would make fun of him. So I think that because he can shoot lights out in this on this yeah. card still, there's no question about it. But I urge anybody who is a 2K player. The cards are available for, I think, seven to ten days, something like that. I don't remember the exact amount of time, but it's limited. So go find that locker code online, get that Kobe card, and enjoy it. It, it was a lot of fun to play with. And then the last thing I wanted to mention for what I've been playing is I have these two buddies who are kind of my best, closest gaming friends. Um, we have done gaming weekends together for the last five, six, seven, eight years or so. Um, we used to do them every other month and then one of our friends moved away to central Washington. And so we've kind of been doing them quarterly or three times a year since then. And just recently we we've, we've been talking about how we've all been like really reinvigorated for gaming in general. And so somebody suggested a co-op night and we, for some reason we've never played hardly anything co-op 
it's always just kind of been doing our own things. And so we decided we were going to go through Gears. Um, our buddy was finishing up Gears 2. He's never played any of them. I've played through Gears 3. Um, and we both logged on and helped him finish Gears 2. And then last Wednesday, uh, yesterday, on Wednesday night, it's going to be our normal night. We got together, had some drinks. We spent like three and a half hours going through Gears 3 together. And we're going to go through three, four, five all in a row. And it was so awesome, man. Um, I don't know if it's because of like quarantine and not really seeing people. Maybe that enhanced it, but it was just such a blast. Both gaming with other people that you're close with, that you're friends with, not just online friends, but like real friends. And then also, if anybody hasn't ever co-opted Gears, I highly recommend this experience because it is the kind of game you want to play together. The banter is hilarious. The action is completely frantic and crazy. And it's just, it is so much fun to like laugh with each other as your characters are doing stupid stuff. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if you've played Gears at all, Paul. Have you enjoyed that series? I like it because it just reminds me of uh, if Michael Bay directed an <laughs> alien movie. Oh my God. Yes. That it's is such just, a great. It's just an explosion. It just it, keeps happening. Totally. Like we kept wanting to stop. We were like, we got to the end of an act and it was like, it was like you and I have talked about um with other games before and you get into this flow and you're like, where is my save point? Like, where is the point where I need to go to bed? But you just, it just keeps propelling you into the next thing and the next situation one after another. And it's frantic and fun. And, um, yeah, it, it, we just, we had such a blast. And I'm so glad that we're doing this. Uh, I'm trying to talk them into taking a break for my, some Microsoft dungeons and they're laughing at me because they don't think that that's going to be very fun, but I'm telling them otherwise it's going to be, they're going to be surprised. You just wait and see. So keep your, Keep your ears peeled, listeners, because I will be giving frequent updates about what we're playing on co-op nights, and I'll tell you any fun stories that may come out of these experiences, which I'm sure there will be some, you know, player-v-player player kills and things of that nature to laugh about in the future. All right. Well, enough of that. Everybody that's here is probably here for Final Fantasy VII, or is at least excited about it. And I know that we are, so it is time to get to the big one. Final Fantasy VII Remake. Final Fantasy VII Remake is an action role-playing game. Yes, that's right. I said an action role-playing game, not a turn-based role-playing game. Uh, developed and published by Square Enix, the game remakes the beloved 1997 PlayStation original Final Fantasy VII, obviously. Uh, the remake was released on March the 2nd. That's not right. April the 2nd. Wait, no, that's not right either. Was it April the 2nd? Maybe it was April the 2nd. Oh, was it? Oh, n April 9th? I don't know why I wrote down a completely bad date. April 10th? Yeah. April 9th at 9 p.m. is when we started. Yeah. Uh, but it came out, yeah, whatever. It came out about <laughs> April, early April in 2020 uh, for the PlayStation 4. Man, I, there is so much to dig into in this, and I think that the best place is to set the stage and figure out like where you and I are both approaching this experience from, because I know that that's going to impact our takeaways. And so I want to ask you first, what is your history with this game and the original Final Fantasy VII? And what kind of like nostalgia or expectations and feelings did you come in with? 
my favorite Final Fantasy game of all time is Final Fantasy VI, which is Final Fantasy III, I guess, on Super Nintendo. Yep. So I was totally amped for seven when it was coming. It was I was so amped that I bought Final Fantasy VII before I had a PlayStation. Because I knew my parents, they, they told me, hey, we're getting a PlayStation for Christmas. And my birthday is in October. So I got the game and waited. That's awesome. So it was the first. Again, I didn't want to play at my friend's house because I wanted to sit and dig into it. So and then I just played it. And I, I just kept going through it and through it because it's a game you can't just play once through. You have to mm-hmm. play because you're going to miss something. Uh, so, I, I mean, I came into it expecting everything and it met every expectation. And it's to this day one of my very favorite games of all time. Is it your so? Is it your favorite Final Fantasy then now? Or well, you said six. So that, was that six before Final Fantasy seven? Uh, gun to my head, I still say six. I mean, oh, that's it, fair. That's definitely a lot of people's. Yeah, I always go. I always vacillate because uh, I've played. I actually, you know, that's Final Fantasy six is probably I've played it more times through. It's not as deep. I would say it's not as it's not as rich, but it's just so much more playable because there's so many characters you can get into in combinations. It's also this is, polished. It's at the end yeah. of a life cycle. And this is something I think for Final Fantasy VII Remake that's going to work in its favor, too, is when you're at the end of a console generation, um, yes. you are everything is clicking at that point. You're like maxing out the abilities of that console or that platform. Whereas if you're like the first generation on that console, like you can tell, you know, the Final Fantasy seven doesn't hold up so great visually speaking and, and such as maybe people remember it. I'm similar. So I played it when it first came out, but I really enjoyed it. I did not love it. Love it. Like I, I didn't carry a nostalgia for it. In particular, I mean, I remembered the story. How could you not? And I enjoyed the gameplay of it a lot. I really have always enjoyed the combat ideas that were in Final Fantasy VII. I had a personal awesome experience with Final Fantasy VIII that kind of shaped my experience with the games going forward. And so eight and then ten were kind of my two favorites for most of the last couple decades, honestly, until I played Final Fantasy 15, which I talked about on one of the other episodes of this podcast. So check that one out if you are interested, because Final Fantasy 15 blew me away. I was surprised by how much I liked it. I wasn't expecting to like the action-based combat at all, and it sucked me in. And so when I came to Final Fantasy 7 Remake, it was unlike many fans. I was upset because they weren't doing turn-based action. I went to yep. PAX last year, did not play the demo. I was like, nope, I have zero interest in this game. Not going to play it. Didn't get my picture taken on Cloud's motorcycle. Talk about a big regret at this point. Uh, spoiler for how I feel. Um, and I just was like, I'm not going to do it, man. The demo came out for PS4 a few weeks ago um, before release. And on a whim, I was like, you know what? What what's it going to cost, right? Like an hour to like play through this demo and just see if it's as bad as I thought. I like my jaw was on the floor after playing that demo. I played it, I think, four times through and I just could not love that combat system more. And I was like, I need to know what they're going to do with this. I need to experience this better. And so 
I went from this place of like, I'm never going to play this game. I care nothing about it at all. I don't, I just not going to touch it to give it to me and pre-ordering it <laughs> before it launched. <laughs> and then here we were, right? So I was sitting at my couch with my drink in hand at nine o'clock and my controller ready to go counting down the seconds for this thing to launch. I was so excited and boom, it, it comes up and we start playing. So here we go. First impressions. What did you like? What did you not like? What what did you how are you feeling about this experience of playing Final Fantasy VII remake? I too was skeptical when I heard about the fact that this game was going to happen. It kind of it's like how do you remake Casablanca? It just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. What are you trying to do? The fact that they took basically the the remake covers well in uh the first disc of the old game. It takes a 5-hour tutorial essentially and turns it into an epic like it couldn't have turned out any better. Like it, it really in execution, you're way more invested in even the supporting characters. Uh, the story is again, you're just kind of running around doing little objectives, but it's, it never stopped. I mean, the only thing I would say is that my one quibble for it is it gets a little tedious at times. It really makes rock soup sometimes of uh, taking one task and have you walk very slowly to do A, B, or C. But generally speaking, I had, I, I love it so much. I just could not put the controller down. I'd play for long chunks of time. So it, it's incredible in terms of how do you remake a classic? This is the new template. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And so you played, when did you finish this game? <laughs> Cause <laughs> it is, uh, in the evening now. I finished it earlier this afternoon. So I am and, fresh off the end. And why is that? What happened last night on your <laughs> final session? I think you started last night at chapter 14. Is that correct? Chapter 15. I okay. was going, yeah, chapter 15. There's 18 chapters. Uh-huh. I thought I'm going to put my kid to bed. I'm going to log in at like eight o'clock. I'm going to finish this or at least put a good dent in it. I thought it was close enough. And then I think you said, no, those, some of those chapters are long. I'm like, okay, they're long, but I'll be done by like two. I look up and there's the sun, the dawn, the, the dawn light is coming through my window and I look, I was like, Oh, I'm on the last chapter. It's five in the morning. I should go to sleep. So you got up, nap time came and you knocked it out. Yep. I was impressed. How long uh, did that final chapter take you? The final chapter only took me two hours, uh, a little over two hours in total. Chapter 17 is a grind. Yeah. That's brutal. It is because it, it follows the normal Final Fantasy formula towards the end of this game of starting to throw boss fight after boss fight after boss fight at you, kind of back to back to back. Final Fantasy 15 did the same thing. I played the Royal Edition of it, and there was like literally seven boss fights in a row at the end of the game, and I was like, this is a little much. Um, seven is better than that. It, there's It's a better paced than that, but there is quite a bit going on, and I think mentally you have gotten to the point by that time that you're just like, you're ready and you're, you're kind of propulsively moving towards that finale. And you're like, but I got to go do all this stuff. Right. And that I can understand. I've heard some criticism of the game. And really that was one of the main criticisms I've heard is like the, the end sort of pacing wise didn't work for everybody. And sort of you're, you're moving really fast around chapter 15 in particular, there's like a lot of dramatic weight happening and then you slow down and you do some learning, which I found to be really compelling and interesting, but depending on your mind and the time you're playing and stuff, it can be a big shift. 
for the most part, though, I loved the pacing. I did every single side quest in the game. I was proud of that. I wanted to take it all in. I, I felt like they were all interesting. And some might be concerned about whether or not the side quests are just fluff. Because like you said, we're taking a five-hour, seven-hour experience and turning it into a 40-hour game. But for me, it wasn't, Paul. It was just enriching the world around Midgar and really making me understand that these characters, there were, I was meeting characters who had interactions with my main party members and telling me backstory about them just on a whim, you know, finding out that such and such character where he grew up and never knew that. And it gave me a better perspective for that character when things would happen and things you would say later on, you could connect the dots yourself. Some of the quests are, are really cool and dynamic one in particular that I absolutely just thought was the neatest thing is you have an opportunity to assist some kids and you don't have to do any of these side quests, right? But if you assist them and you do the things that they need you to do, this is a bit of a spoiler. So I think it's not that bad. But when you finish this, the kids will all of a sudden all be wearing wooden buster swords on their back. And it's because now Cloud has helped them. Cloud is their hero. And so that kind of like immersive world building, I thought worked really well. The way the structure is, is the side quests are confined into, I'd say, like four different areas or four chapters-ish. So it's not every single chapter. There's linear chapters that are very much like an Uncharted game, I would say. Uh, yeah. Or something of that. And then you might hit a chapter where it's like a city hub and you can do some side quests if you want. I would highly recommend if you haven't played this or if you're playing through it now, do all the side quests. It's it's really good content. They're well written. They're fun. They're not overly tedious because you're not doing them every single chapter. I, I, I agree with you, Paul, though, on the lack of fast travel in this game at times. I get it. I got it. So I... I I liked a lot of it because I enjoyed having to run through rubble and city streets and understand what the world of Midgard looked like beneath the plates. But then there were other times when I was just like, man, I really want to go over there and do this thing. And I have to run a long way to get there. And so that was a little bit of an, I guess, an annoyance when you're in a hurry. The beauty of it is this game's soundtrack is playing in the background. And it's one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard in my life. Like, I, it is phenomenal. I was telling you how much I wish I'd bought the $80. It's $80 to buy this soundtrack, but it's like eight discs or something. It's sold out now, and I'm so mad. That's a steal, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you were saying you own all of them. Is that right? All the soundtracks? Have been yeah, the original, the original video game soundtrack. And then there's been a bunch. They do orchestrated versions of the oh. songs. So, like, Aerith's theme. There's, like, ten different orchestral versions of just that theme one wind angel like every all the big themes like there's if there's 15 final fantasy games in their soundtracks there's probably no less than 30 cds of just music oh that's awesome well this one was amazing i thought the music was incredible and it has like a dynamic quality to it where it will rise and fall the orchestra will, depending on like the level of action you're in. I don't know how it does that, but it feels awesome because you will like start taking it to an enemy and it will get louder and closer to you and just more powerful. 
in the background and it just kind of, I think it just spurred me on emotionally. I was like, all right, I'm going to town, you know, like I've got this background music behind me. I'm a hero. I noticed those were the, the, the final grind in chapter 17 with some of the, you really, cause you're fighting for your life and a few times you really have to just go all in and then you feel the music behind you. I mean, at three in the morning, that really helped out. Absolutely. It helps push you, push you on forward, just like your characters are feeling. They're feeling tired. They're feeling drained and like they just want to get to their objective. They want to save a friend or, you know, save the world or whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And it's hard. And so that music helps a lot. Um, you mentioned the characters in general, like the character development for me is probably what makes this such an incredible experience. I mean, there's, um, I like everything about this game. So it all works together in one big perfect package for me, but without the character development, it would just be another great game. And for me, this took the characters that I knew and it made them more well-rounded and developed them in a way that they are all-time favorites now. They are up there with my love for Nathan Drake um, because of how deeply I feel I got to know them. Barrett, Barrett was a joke in Final Fantasy VII. He was a stereotype. He's a Mr. T, right? Yeah. That was that was his whole point. And he's supposed to be over the top or whatever, but like there was nothing else about him. In this game, he is so well fleshed out. Like he has a family that he cares about and his decision making reflects that. And yes, he still gives his ridiculous one-liners all the time where you laugh at them. You know, he gives us the classic... Which I can, I, dude, I, I literally just geek out every time that he does the victory theme. And then, but then there's moments where there's this raw emotion to him and you're like, okay, this is a real dude who's going some, through some stuff. Like he's a leader of what is essentially a terrorist cell. Um, yeah. I guess we haven't really gone over the story for those that haven't played this. Maybe I should, but I'll rocket fire through the story concept here. Uh, basically you're playing as Cloud, who is this, ex-soldier he's gonna tell you that about a hundred times so don't worry about forgetting it he'll remind you over and over and over but he's this ex-soldier mercenary now for hire and he's been paid to work with this group called avalanche and avalanche is essentially an eco-terrorist group who is trying to sabotage the reactors in this cyberpunk city called midgar and there's this electric company that's very anime because they have all the power. They've been at war with another group or company called Wutai, and they've basically been able to take over this Midgar area. And they've built this huge, incredible, amazing city up in the sky that is held up by these big reactors. And these reactors are powered by essentially what is the life force of the planet. And our characters, Avalanche, the, the, um, I guess resistance, if you will, they are trying to bring this down because they want to save the planet. And there are all of these people that are living underneath this big plate city in the slums. They don't have food. They don't have money. They don't have anything. It's obviously it's the haves and the have nots. So they don't have they, real sunlight. <laughs> they don't. They don't. That's right. So they their sun is essentially these big sunlights that shine down on them um, from above. Just imagine that like never like feels right now we're in coronavirus time we're all in quarantine so you live in your house imagine never actually stepping out in the sun again it would be crazy and that's what these people live through so there's a lot of socioeconomic 
themes being explored in this game. Environmentalism is being explored. The questions about how far should this terrorist group go? Because they are terrorists. Uh, Are they justified? Are they not justified? These are the big themes that people have fallen in love with about this game. And within it, these are these characters. Barrett is their leader. You have Jesse and Biggs and Wedge, who are some work, you know, workers, part of this resistance that, that are, you know, they help do the bombings. They, they help sneak people through cities and such. And then you have Cloud, this mercenary joining them and uh, Tifa, his friend from childhood, who's also part of this group. And you're just getting to know them as they want to save the city. And you get to question along with them, like, are they doing the right thing? Is that, are they going about it the right way? And then, you know, what about this evil company that they're fighting against? And, you know, at some point, this, I felt like this game stayed incredibly grounded, Paul. I, th- I really liked that. Like, for the most part, the vast majority of the game was really easy to understand. And then, it, you know, it gets, a little anime <laughs> toward the end, maybe a lot anime. Oh, a lot. <laughs> it goes a lot anime, but it's all related to the original game. And what I thought was kind of really brilliant is just the way that they understood the nostalgia from the original game and the way that they implement it here. Little nods to pieces of the game uh, that fans were really excited about. They're there and nothing is altered I mean, there's things that are altered. Nothing is altered in a way that hurts the characters. It only enhances them. Yeah, it, this game doesn't exist without nostalgia. That's just flat out the way that you know Final Fantasy VII is a classic at this point. So, and you're right, it, it doesn't hurt. It only flushes everything out. Everything you mentioned is basically in the, ver- uh, the original game. But now we get to see Barrett delivering these crazy speeches, but you get to see his small nuances, like the way he's performing, just the inflections of his voice. Him talking to Marlene is different than him talking like, hey, guys, we're going to save the plant. I mean, you get to see way more of his dimension. Everybody has layers now. And now that you're seeing their layers, all the other supporting characters also get layers. And the city, I guess the game is 100 gigabytes of data on your PlayStation 4. Because there's no recycled structures in Midgar. Everything is unique. Everything is, it feels like when you, you mentioned running around from point A to point B. Yeah, it's lame, but you get a true sense of the, the slums. You get to see the nightmare they're living in and this, the, how terribly these guys have to live underneath, well, the halves and the half, you know, up there. I mean, you get a real sense of the world and the characters. And that every again remake is is it's what the original should have been and would have been if it was made today. Yeah, absolutely. I totally totally agree. And it also it also brings in some elements from some other games. And we'll we'll talk about that more when we get to the spoiler section, uh, which we'll do after this. But it is broader than just the Final Fantasy VII contained story. So. Final Fantasy VII actually consists, if you want to take it into an expanded universe, of some other properties, other games, some movies and such. And this this actually has some relation to those as well. So one thing that has got to be right for people, and I, and I have a friend who is a hardcore Final Fantasy VII original nut, and he just keeps posting on Facebook about how frustrated he is 
and how he just he's ready to give up because he hates the combat. And this is the thing. If you don't like it, and this goes for any RPG, if you don't like the combat, you're not going to want to spend 40 hours doing it, right? It's yeah. that simple. So what did you think about the combat in this game? When I first heard that it wasn't going to be turn-based, I was like, well, you've already failed. But now the way that it's executed, it feels like I, it's not like every character is unique in the way they handle. So it's very action based. So I'm not an action game person, although, you know, I kind of like some fighting games. Generally speaking, I prefer turn based. But now I, it feels like, okay, well, Barrett has a completely different mechanic than Cloud, who has a completely different mechanic than Aerith, who has a completely different mechanic than Tifa. And not just Barrett, not even Barrett is one dimensional because he has weapons that are long range and short range and everybody else, just the way that even he operates is different. And it's, to me, it's, it keeps it engaging because I know I can customize my characters and it's a lot more engaging because I'm now not just putting a, hitting a button, three buttons in a minute. I'm actually having to kind of execute timing of everything i actually have to be very aware and very on point in battles i can't just kind of sleepwalk my way through a fight heal heal fire heal defend i actually have to know okay where am i in my bar like my atb bar my my action can i do this action can i do i have to be aware of that every second of a 30 minute fight to me i like that yeah and for three characters up to three characters at a time you have to be aware so for those of you who are not familiar with either the original game or the way that this one is implementing it, this ATB system was something that was completely unique to Final Fantasy VII Original and is very beloved, um, and for good reason. It stands for Action Time Bar, I believe. I'm going to guess. I actually don't know. <laughs> that sounds about right. but Action yeah. Turn Based or something. I don't know. But anyway, it's an action bar. So as you're playing the game, as you begin a fight, this bar starts to fill. And most characters have two bars. Um, you can make those bigger with certain skills. And when you fill a bar up, you then gain access to these special abilities and attacks. And that could be anything from using a spell to using an item to a, a, a throwing out a healing potion or using a potion to turn yourself, you know, back into a human after you've been turned into a frog by the most annoying enemy in the game. <laughs> I falls shaking his head because he knows what I'm talking about. Oh. Uh, it was awful. Um, and you know, when you build up more of these, eventually, along with that, the more you're fighting, you'll build up to what eventually will be a limit break, and that's like this super cinematic, cool, spectacular special attack for each character. And then also, as you're taking damage throughout your fights, you may build up enough to eventually have the game trigger a summon. So that's one thing that's different. In this game, you don't actually have the ability to call on a summon at any time you want. You will equip your summons, and the game will determine randomly when your summon is able to be used. It felt like the game knew what it was doing. It almost always came out during a boss fight at a applicable moment it, it almost never was like the final hit on a boss but it would come out when your party was getting a little bit roughed up and the boss was you know halfway or so there and you needed a little push you would get some summons um, i really enjoyed that honestly i didn't it didn't let me overuse the summon which i tend to do if the game allows me because it's awesome summons are like these huge cinematic experiences right this made it kind of special every time it happened 
But anyway, you're filling up this ATB gauge. And like you said, so it takes that aspect of like action combat, which I generally do not like either. I'm not a fan in RPGs of this. And you can pause the game at any point to fire off these abilities. And what's brilliant is that it's not a total pause. It's like a super duper duper slowdown pause. I actually found myself sometimes I got in trouble because I would watch in the background as a character was like slowly doing something. I'd be like, oh, that's really cool. And then it would like happen and I would waste my opportunity. Right. But yeah, it just the game is meant to have you switch between these characters. And the friend I was telling you about, he's like, I don't like doing that. And I'm like, well, then this isn't the game for you. Like, I don't know what to tell you. But you're not, he wasn't being successful. I was like, you're not going to be successful if you're one character and you just run up. That's not the game. The game allows you very easily to move between characters with like a thumbstick flip. And if you're not constantly shifting, constantly moving them in and out of your enemies' ranges and utilizing all of their special abilities to create what's called this stagger gauge. So as enemies take a certain amount of damage, you can kind of put them in a mode where they're like vulnerable. And then you get the opportunity to just like unleash all your skills and like waylay them and do massive damage as a team. And that's kind of your flow for each combat. Your goal is to stagger an enemy, work, work it around strategically, get it staggered and then pound the heck out of it. Right. It is an awesome flow. It really is. It's super fun. The other thing, man, that I just am blown away by, and I will have to say, I'm going to go on record and I'm going to say that. It is my favorite combat idea in RPG history, and I'm a huge RPG fan as well, is the Materia system. You agree? Yes, absolutely agree. I mean, it's I can customize my characters. I can customize growth. I can do all sorts of things, and it de- depends entirely of which ones I have and allocate them between my teammates. I mean, I really have to sit there and think, okay, how am I going to go into this next battle? I have to plan. And then even when I have a good like plan, it, it might need to be completely scrapped because I'll be killed because I'm dumb. <laughs> That's true. My material can help you, you know, mitigate that. So the material system is like, you'll, if you've seen images of Cloud's Buster Sword, you'll see like these holes in it, right? These little cir- circular cutouts. Materia is this, these little orbs that are essentially allow you to put in a power into your weapon and, and your armor. And you can have multiple slots. Sometimes you can get increase your slots as you level your weapon up. You can even sometimes link the slots together for special magnified effects. For example, you could have a a piece of materia that makes your spell go farther. And if you put it in a linked slot with a fire spell, then it makes your fire fire spell go farther. Um, There's my one of my favorites is like an elemental affinity materia. And if you put it in there with a fire spell, then your weapon becomes a fire weapon, essentially. Everything that your weapon hits is fire damage. And what this allows is, like Paul was saying, the ultimate inflexibility. Because Cloud is a sword user, and Aerith is a mage, and Barret is a ranged character. But because of the different weapons that they all have, and because of the ability to move these pieces of materia around, you can literally make anybody you want your mage. Your healer, your baseline fighter, you know what I mean? Like your, your tank. You can give them those powers. And sometimes you have to do that. What's, what's neat is like as you play the game, these materias level up, like Paul was mentioning, 
And so you may max out a healing materia and then you're going to want to make sure you're moving that around because it gives you a massive heal. You don't want it on a character that you're not using. You want it on a character that's fighting in your party at all times. And so just like managing that system throughout the game for me was an extreme joy and trying to get all the different types of materia, trying to max them out and find like what I felt was the perfect synergies for my characters and my group at any one point in time. It, I love it. I think it is the most fun I've ever had in a combat system. I think the, the second most fun is probably like the bravely default system for me um, that you use in Octopath Traveler, where you can like build up kind of like lock in attacks and then unleash like four in a row. If you're like, it's kind of like gambling, right? Like I'm going to save this attack, <laughs> save this attack, take some damage, take some damage and then bam, 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 bam. And they get progressively tougher. I like that system a lot, but man, the materia here. And I think, you know, visually it's awesome because they did such a great job focusing on the character graphics here and the weapons change. And this is a big thing for me that elevates games. If you have unique skins like weapon skins or armor skins, weapons themselves, and they don't change the character on the character, it's, it's really lame in this in 2020. Yeah. But this game, they change, and they change in the cutscenes, too. So if you change the gloves Tifa's wearing, and you change the materia, it will reflect the correct materia and the correct glove in all future cutscenes. That is a big deal for immersion, in my opinion. And um, it's just, it, they're colorful, so they bring this pop to this otherwise often dull, dark, gray, really depressive world that these people are working through. Um, I, I just can't say enough about the combat, though. I... Never, ever play games after I beat them, Paul. I just don't do it. But this game, I between the combat and the characters, I don't want to stop. I don't want to walk away from them. I want to spend as much time with them. I'm scared to death to play this game on hard. Oh, no, no, no not right now. No, no. I need to get stronger. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, on hard mode, you don't get to use items. And so it's a real, real challenge. Uh, but I, I don't know if I'm going to actually take it on or not, but I'm having fun leveling in the meantime, just to try and max characters out. Just, just to, like I said, just to live in this world and do the combat more because it's so much fun. It had me thinking, what if they were to take, so we're expecting another two games of this. Is that right? Oh, have they announced it. They haven't announced it. There's no announcement of when they're coming out or how many. It's just kind of, Hey, this will happen some point yeah it's gonna be episodic we just don't know how many episodes but you know what if they took like this combat system and applied it to say a remake in this exact same graphical type like this whole formula and they did ff10 like or what if they did chrono trigger (laughs) can you imagine how the world would implode like i mean that's probably like that's my favorite historical rpg um this one is rivaling it right now for me, to be honest. But I would just, it would blow my mind if they were able to do that. I'm so impressed what Square has done. Um, where does this one sit for you? Like in your kind of, like right now, I know, I know we're early reactions for you. I've had a few days to sit on it and think. I know you're coming off of literally beating the game, but if you had to say, hey, uh, let's start with this. Do you think this has surpassed the original for you? Uh, yes, uh, for now, because we have to see where the next episodes go. But as far as this, you just took disc one of the first version and mm-hmm. remake, which are basically the same story. Yep. Say, okay, 
apples to apples, which is it? I have to go with remake for right now. It's far more engaging. It's far more. It has a lot more depth and every across every uh, everywhere. I mean, even little things that used to take two seconds to beat in the first game, like Wall Market. You're in Wall Market for forever. Like yeah, whole, hours. Yeah, you're in there getting to know all the businesses and. You are really, like you said, it's immersive because I now am getting the sense of where everybody's lives are. And it's just so much more of a, they made, again, they made an epic out of which is essentially the, the beginning learnings of the first game. There's stuff that's on here that's like loading screens, basically, in the other game, like just a couple lines of text. And it's like expanded into whole, like, sequence of events or side quests in this game. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I, Absolutely, absolutely love it as well. I think it is, it is, like I said, it's my favorite Final Fantasy. I'm going on record, I can say that, and it's easily going to be one of my best RPGs I've ever played. Um, and I, I just cannot wait for the sequel. I'm so, so, so in love with it. And I'm so, so, so shocked that I am because I was never a major Final Fantasy fan, but you know what? I guess I am now. I, I'll tell you right now, I wasn't super hyped. I literally bought this almost on a whim when it dropped like a store just opened up and you know being as it is no stores are open but these guys said hey we're gonna sell some copies today so i just picked it up and i didn't i haven't put it down it'll do that man it'll do that well now we are going to go into our spoiler talk for those listening we are going to cut this and put it at the end of the episode. So we aren't going to ruin the game for you. Don't worry. We're going to just have this thing flow right on into our next news section. But for those of you that are interested, you can keep listening through the news and after the credits, and then you will hear our thoughts as we try to unpack the ending of this game. Well, like I mentioned in the opening, our format has changed a little bit and what was formerly known as Get hype is now just going to be more of a general news conversation, but also heavily leaning towards things we are hyped about because I like to be excited about things. So we had a couple of big reveals. And it works well this week, Paul, because we're talking about a PlayStation exclusive in Final Fantasy VII Remake, and we got some cool PlayStation 5 news. One of the biggest things that came out recently is this PlayStation 5 controller reveal. We still haven't seen the console, but we now know what the controller looks like, what it's called, and some of the things it can do. Uh, so it is called the DualSense controller, uh, following on the heels of the DualShock controller. Uh, this controller looks very much like a boomerang, in my opinion. <laughs> it's sort of got more of an Xbox rounded feel to it. Uh, it has a two-tone white and black with a little bit of blue look. And people, of course, are already screaming for different color options. And I'm like, goodness gracious, this is just a reveal. Calm down. Like, I'm sure you'll have your color options. Don't worry. <laughs> the controller is said to have haptic feedback and adaptive triggers. So I feel like we're basically just a suit away from Ready Player One at this point when you figure in your PS5 VR. Uh, but the tr controllers and the triggers are apparently going to be able to do things. The examples that they gave are, uh, for example, like notching an arrow in Horizon Zero Dawn. You're going to be able to do different levels of pulling that controller. Your controller is going to be able to kind of read the feelings that are going coming through your fingers and your hands as you're playing. I, I don't even know how it's going to work, but I'm fascinated by it. 
And the share button has been rebranded the create button. They have not given any details really on what all you're going to be able to do from the create button, but essentially it will also be your kind of intro entrance point to streaming and screenshot taking and sharing and all of that good stuff. And then the controller is still going to have an audio jack, which makes many people very happy because you can plug in basically any headset to it. And it's going to have a built-in microphone, which is unique. So, you know, if you're not using a headset or you're in a pinch, you could always just talk into your controller, I guess, while you're playing an online game with your friend. So what did you think about this when it was revealed? What were your kind of first reactions to seeing this thing, man? I can't even wrap my head around all the new things. I mean, this opens up the dimensions of things. Because I remember back when, oh, triggers, now like some of these are touch sensitive. Oh, this is way beyond that. I feel the next PS5 or 6 controller will just be an implant. That's the only way this can get more advanced. Like it has to be a part of my body because this is the controller. It kind of looks like the quantum suits from Endgame. It, it kind of does. I I saw a mashup of it where it, lo- it was next to Atlas from Portal 2, and I, it like looks like a part of his body. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's funny because the controller, as I see it, it looks like you said, kind of like a hybrid Xbox controller married with a PlayStation controller, but. Every time I see a controller now, next the current gen or whatever, I'm like, every one of these owes their whole existence to the Super Nintendo controller. Like, really? Like, that's where it begins. And now only a few years later, we get to see this. I don't even, I, I just the Zero Dawn thing is incredible. Like, I can't imagine, like, all the different things you can do in so many of these games, like Skyrim. Yep. Oh, geez. I mean, it might be less, I don't know how, like, there's certain games where it'd be very, uh, like uh, maybe sports games could be pretty good, but I think RPGs probably be the most benefit the most out of it. Racing games could benefit. It's it's, oh, it's yeah. all about like that haptic feedback and that tension that it's going to be able to build into the controllers to where you're having to push harder to move thing. I think you're going to be able to feel a lot more weight and momentum in your character actions. And I'm just I'm super excited to see what developers do with this. Like. Because it's like a playground for them, you know. Like, oh, what can I make my character do now? I'm, I'm pumped. Uh, I like, I think, I imagine something like the Leviathan axe in God of War. Like when you're, you know, trying to throw it. Like maybe it's heavier because it's, you know, and then maybe the button comes down a lot easier when you're using your chains because they're a lighter weapon. Uh, it's just things like that are going to be really, really neat. Personally, I love the design. Um, I think that rounding it out a little bit is good. It's it's nice for the hands. Uh, I think that it's going to fit in more gamers' hands. It's a really hard thing to match up any controller with everybody's hand sizes: large, small, medium. Um, this looks like a good medium, a good happy medium for that, in my opinion. Um, I guess we'll see once we are able to touch it, but at least just looking at it. I wondered what you thought about thumbsticks, though. Uh, this is a big debate out in the world, of course, and that is, do you prefer the PlayStation model of two thumbsticks in alignment, or do you prefer the offset thumbsticks of the Xbox model type controller? I prefer the PlayStation one because I have now my hand expects those things to be perfectly aligned because when I try to play. Xbox game, I, I just keep fumbling around. My hand now, the muscle memory is set yeah. to the, I expect my control stick to be here. 
and I know exactly which angles to hit, which is pretty yeah. good for like Madden or something. Yeah, I think that that probably is where most gamers are going to lie is what they played the most because of like, this is what I'm used to. I play a fair amount of both and I'm still mm. torn. I like the fact that on, so I, I think when I'm not using a D-pad, I'll say this. I prefer probably the offset. It feels maybe better naturally. But when I need to use a D-pad in a game frequently, the way that my thumb slides forward off of the thumbstick and onto the D-pad immediately feels better to me than trying to slide it backwards. Yeah. I, that doesn't feel natural. And so I prefer the PlayStation for that. Uh, but ultimately, like, I feel like they're both great controllers. They both work just fine. And it's a silly argument to have. Like, there's no absolute perfect. It's about what you can get comfortable with and enjoy. And clearly, generations and generations of PlayStation fans have been just fine on their model and their design. And at this point, they can't change it. Like, it would be like admitting Microsoft won something. And I just I can't imagine business-wise, them ever being willing to do that. Even if Microsoft imploded, you're going to have this controller format for the rest of eternity. Yeah, it's it's synonymous with the PlayStation. It's iconic. Like, you look at it, you look at a graphic, and you know it's a PlayStation controller because of the way that the thumbsticks are oriented. And frankly, it's even more so now than ever before because pretty much everybody else has adopted the Xbox style, so you can't necessarily define it as an Xbox controller anymore. Like the the Nintendo Switch Pro controller looks just like it, but you know a PlayStation controller because it's different. Um, but yeah, that being said, like I'm hyped for this controller. I can't wait to get it in my hands. I actually love the look of it as well. I like white, so it works for me. I got no complaints. And speaking of PS5, today they announced the new potential price point. There was some news that came out. What was it that we found out? What else did we find out in this article, Paul? That it's going to not only be in the realm of $500, but that it'll actually be harder to get at launch because there's going to be a, a limited number of them coming out when it launches. Relative, there are going to be fewer units available at launch than the PS4. So if a PS4 was hard for you to get hands-on, uh, this might be harder. So I wonder how coronavirus is going to play into this. I know that in some of the stuff that I read, they had said that the coronavirus... Uh, pandemic is actually affecting their marketing strategies more than their production right now so that they're still on track for a holiday 2020 release for the console i mean we haven't even seen it yet (laughs) so but they say it's coming and we don't know a date Uh, and they've said you know this 500 to 550 price point is potentially going to push some people away due to maybe economic struggles people not being in a position to get it Um, do you do you think that's going to be a drastic change? I mean, there's also no new first party games that have been announced to kind of launch with it. So maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense for people to get it right away because they could just keep playing their PlayStation 4 Pro uh, and they could still play all of the same games on it. So maybe why jump into this? Yeah, I mean, personally, I think I've only bought one system at launch and that only at, like you mentioned, it has everything to do with the launch library is usually pretty thin to begin with so if you don't have a killer setup launch uh, a lot of games that you need at launch why am i going to three different stores and paying four hundred dollars for something i'm not going to kill myself to buy something that only plays like a couple of lame games so if they they show up and said hey we got final fantasy remake 2 and yeah (laughs) i'm like okay well now i'm going to 
I'm going to go to every store and pay $600. Yeah, I totally, totally get it. I, I, I don't think it matters, honestly, is what it is ultimately where I land on this. I think that they will still sell plenty of units over the life time of yeah. the PlayStation 5 and that what they sell right at the launch is a lot less critical than what the infrastructure is. You know, I've long known that they sell consoles at a loss frequently. Like the console is not what makes or breaks a game company's success for Xbox or PlayStation. It's not the console sales. And you may be thinking that listeners, but it's really not because those boxes make up just a very, very tiny fraction. It's the games and it's the services that they're able to sell you on. That's why Xbox is in such a great position right now with Game Pass and the service that they have been building with xCloud and all this other functionality and backwards compatibility. Sony's got to catch up to that stuff because Xbox is an amazing value. Like whatever the box costs, it's what you, like you don't even have to buy a brand new game and you've got, if you buy Game Pass for you know, five or 10 bucks a month, you've got access to a ton of them and brand new ones and all this stuff. So that is where these companies are competing. The boxes, you know, Sony's has got less teraflops, but it's got stronger processing power or not. Maybe it's not, I don't even think it's like a, bigger SSD or something, but they're, they're, they're very similar. And essentially your experience is going to be like pretty much equal and the same across the consoles. So it really is going to come down to the games and stuff. Uh, and that's, what's going to matter most. And that's what people are going to buy it based on. And that's, you know, us PlayStation fans, they have the exclusives. Like that's why yeah. I'm still a PlayStation fan is because I can't fathom losing uncharted and God of war and these final fantasy games and such like these are critical to my gaming history and my nostalgia and what I love to play now. Halo has not been able to do that. Not Halo. <laughs> See, that's Halo. Uh, Microsoft <laughs> has not been able to do that yet, with the exception of like having, you know, Halo and Gears of War. They're really limited on exclusive series that are console sellers. And so that's a big debate. But yeah, man, for me, I don't really care if it's hard to get or not. I'm getting it day one. <laughs> um, I'm excited about it. I'm getting both. I'm saving my pennies now so that I'll be able to do that later uh, because I love having a little bit of, you know, planning time. I mean, if I could find one, that'll be that's the only hurdle. It's like no, ah. That's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm going to try to like pre-order or whatever we can do. But you're right. They, depending on how limited, it could still be a challenge. I guess we'll find out. All right, man. Well, this has been awesome. Again. I just want to make sure people know like where they can find your work, whether it's gaming or movies. You, I don't even think you mentioned that you're a film critic, but you are just like me. So you should tell people where they can read your movie reviews when there are movies again. Uh, but yeah, man, where can people find you online? Uh, my Twitter is escape into film and my website is escape into film. Now I'm emphasizing film because I, I was lucky in the sense that uh, Twitch, <laughs> the handle escape into gaming was available. So escape into film on Twitter for my movie stuff. Escape into gaming on Twitch on, um, uh, for gaming. And I might just change my, uh, I might just try to incorporate that somehow into my Facebook thing, just so it's all cohesive and whatever, easier to find. But my Facebook live streams for my gaming stuff, just because it's so much fun to get back into gaming and just, I get to relive all these games and I've uh, played for so long. So being able to stream them again, especially like a uh, Final Fantasy on my, uh, P Nikki gaming therapy Facebook channel is fun. So. That's where I'm doing my stuff. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you being here. It's been an, a, a wonderful discussion. I love getting to talk about this one. Listeners, 
Uh, for episode six, we will be continuing the remake talk. I have another film critic friend coming on, and this time we'll be talking about Resident Evil 3 remake. Since we're new around here as a podcast, also, we would love your support in helping us spread the word about the show. And so if you're enjoying it, let us know on Twitter. Hit me up. It's gotta be gaming is the tag or at Aaron L. White if you want to find me that way. If you could leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts, tell a gamer friend about us, follow us on other social media, we would really appreciate it. Just help get us the word out, spread it, and grow. And until next time, just remember that it doesn't matter if you're playing something old or new, you've gotta be gaming. Okay, we're back. Thank you for sticking with us. Those of you who've finished the game and are excited to hear the spoiler portion of this topic and this talk. So thank you. Here is your spoiler warning. Just to be absolutely sure you are listening right now, we are about to tell you exactly what happens. And you don't want to know. You want to experience it for yourself. So please play the game first. Um, or if you're just not going to play the game, I guess you can keep listening. With that said, Paul, 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 Paul. So you finished Ooh. the game a few hours ago. Hey, you haven't had a lot of time to process this. <laughs> I haven't, but I have so many feelings and all of them are good. I'm, I'm so satisfied for what I've seen. I am so excited for what's coming. And I, I, for a game where you saw the demo and it literally was almost beat for beat the first, the, the bombing mission from the original game. I was like, Oh, this is just going to be like a 3D version of the old game. Oh no. This has gone completely off the rails now. This is yeah. something that could be incredible. It really could. So, so the final boss is Sephiroth, first of all, like, which is what? Sephiroth wasn't even in the game in the first, like, section. Like, this is, Sephiroth is an idea at this point. Like, he's not a part of the Final Fantasy VII story, but this game has made him a part of the story. And just to kind of unpack the way that I understand this going, what they have done in this game, which is incredibly, incredibly brilliant, is they've essentially tricked us all. And instead of FF7 Remake being thinking of it in the traditional way that you would when you think of something just being completely remade beat for beat, you almost have to think of this more as like FF7 dash remake or colon remake. And what is happening here is they're remaking the entire direction of the Final Fantasy VII origin story. Uh, there's these Dementor-like characters that come out of nowhere early on in the game, and you're like, WTF, if you're like me, what is this thing? I've never seen this thing before. It's like flowing around. Is it going to start sucking my life force out or what? And you really don't understand them for much of the game, but eventually you do towards the end it gets explained and these they're called whispers and they're arbiters of fate their job is to keep the tr story of final fantasy 7 on track so when you first meet them they are kind of ensuring that you meet Aerith as cloud because that's a critical thing Later, at times, they will save characters. There's that moment where Barrett dies, and I about threw my controller out. I was so upset. Like, Sephiroth kills Barrett, And I was like, 
okay, that looks like the kind of thing that Square would do to to just completely surprise us. And I was so upset. Uh, and these whispers saved him. They came back and they saved him later. And so the reason for that is because they're trying to keep things to happen the way that they happened in the original game. You could almost think of them as like toxic fans <laughs> of the game, right? Like there are these people on the internet that are like, no, you have to do it exactly the same way. You can't change anything. That's what whispers are. And essentially the way the story plays out is you have to beat fate. It's like, it's like final destination up in here in this game. <laughs> like they're trying to be death and make sure this thing happens and you're trying to cheat it. And eventually you have to very like literally, I get it. It's supposed to be metaphorically or whatever, but you have to kill fate so that you can then progress the story in a different way than it has ended before. And so when we're left with the end of this game, Paul, the world is wide open. Like they're all bets are off. Zach is back. I don't know if you know who Zach is. Did you, did you play Final Fantasy Crisis Core by chance? I, a billion years ago, I kind okay. of very, very tangentially remember. So real quick backstory on Zach, because it feels like he's about to be a very critical character going forward. Zach is the character in black that we see towards the very end of this. We see him about to face down against this like overwhelming force of soldiers in a field in the end of Cry crisis core. Zach is mowed down. He literally is, he fights, fights, fights. You as the player go for a while trying to extend this battle and eventually he dies. And he is the mentor of Cloud and like a best friend. He's also the boyfriend of Aerith, who she mentions in this game when she meets Cloud and she says, you look like my boyfriend. And Cloud's like, what's his name? Maybe I know him. Well, the thing is like Cloud was just a soldier. And Zack was an actual soldier. He was like of the bomb. Like he was the actual hero. But he dies. And there's this incredibly emotional moment where he passes his buster sword on to Cloud. That's where Cloud gets it and says, like, you go on. You be my legacy. It's, I watched it again after the movie, after playing the game. And I was like in tears just watching it. And so in Final Fantasy VII Remake, after you've killed fate, we get this great scene where Zack is like looking around shocked because all the soldiers are done. They're dead. And he's walking back. So all I can say is I think Zack is alive. Like oh. we are in a new timeline, right? Like we've, we've basically JJ Abram. Yes. Um, Kelvin. We've Kelvin this thing. Oh yeah. We are now all bets are off. Like everything that when you start the game out and you know what's going to happen, like I, I hated getting attached to Jesse and the other members of the of Avalanche because I know what happens to them at the pillar. So then when you start to see those beats unfold, you're like, oh, well, this is exactly how it's going to happen. And of course, you know, things happen to them. And you're like, oh, well, now they're dead. And then you start to think for bigger, like, well, I know what happens to Aerith. Yeah, that we're all dreading that. Right. Yeah, that's the that's the cliff we're all driving toward. You can don't fall in love with me. She's talking to me. She's talking to every game player. 100%. So, so she knows that you can't get attached because there's something that's going to happen. Whether or not she completely knows, that's kind of vague. But that's off the table now. It might happen in another way. But now everything is completely, completely redefined. You have all the same pieces. And you get, we now have a huge play bin of what happens to Sid, what happens to Yuffie. I mean, all these other pieces that are still out there. 
and we don't know where this is going, and that's why I'm really excited. I, I agree. So for me, uh, like it has like rocketed it into the stratosphere, and it, you know, we would be hyped to continue playing the story as it is. But you're right; there's just a different feeling when you know what's coming, and you're just watching something happen all over again with better pictures. This is not that anymore. This game does the legwork to get you to care about these characters. Biggs and Wedge, I believe they don't make it out either at the end of the original Final Fantasy VII. Is that correct? I'm pretty sure they die. Yeah, all three of the events. They uh, get crushed (laughs) when the plate falls, all three of them, Jesse included. And instead, Biggs and Wedge are alive at the end of this game. So timeline has been shifted, and there are going to be some hardcore fans that are just going to flip and not be okay with it. But I think it's amazing. And I think that they have proven in the storytelling of this episode that wherever they want to take it, I mean, it's somewhere I want to go. It's something I want to explore. I want to know more about the Turks. So you fight rude and, Oh, what's his name? Reno. Reno. Fantastic characters in this game, right? Those guys are from crisis core as well, by the way. Um, and you fight them a couple times. And so I want, I want to know more about the Turks. There's a guy named uh, Roche who you have the motorcycle fight with and then like the one-on-one battle. And he says to you at the end of the one-on-one, he's like, you and I are not at our full potential yet. Like he's got such flair. He's going to come back. Oh, like I want to know. I want to know what's up with that dude, too. You know, Um, you've definitely got like the Wu Tai versus Shinra stuff that we're going to have to explore and figure out. And so there's there's just so much there. And it just to have. It be this playground now where you no longer can rely on your knowledge of the original game to tell you what's going to happen. They they have masterfully pulled the strings and the puppet on us because we all fell for it. Hook, line, sinker. When Biggs died, or we thought Biggs died on that plate, it was like, oh, we're just, we got to, Je- you said it, we got to Jesse, she died, okay, we knew that was going to happen. It was big time emotional because we got to know Jesse better. Dude, that whole chapter sequence where we got to go to her parents' house. Oh, I mean, that was just, I was already falling in love with her. Now I am into her family and what, what her whole motivation before, before in the original game, she was just a background character who flirted a little bit. Now I know who her mother is and what food she likes. I mean, and her dad is like on a breathing machine. I mean, he's dead now. Like we, that would like we, it gives weight to, literal weight to when the plate falls and crushes all of these people, they're no longer just avatars that got crushed. It's thousands of people. It's people that you walked down the street and you talked to, or you heard, or you were in the house. So when Jesse's dying, like it just, it, it really emotionally pulls you into that world. And you're like, you're feeling for her. You don't want her to go anymore. And you know what that's going to mean. And then, and then Biggs dies and you're like, okay, we're just, we're, we're following the formula. We're going to pull these emotional beats. And then it suddenly Wedge is dead, but then he's not. And, and I think you start to kind of think, oh, are we playing with something here? And it just, it, then it starts to ratchet up after that. Oh, you hit perfectly. Cause that was the first moment I had when Wedge, cause in the original game, all you see is Wedge falling off the pillar and then boom, he's, he's gone. In this game, he falls and then he saves himself. I'm like, oh, wait, something's different. Something's shifted. Now, I mean, that was the first hint and I didn't think it would go much. I thought, oh, they're playing with expectations. Oh, yeah, they did way more than that. 
Yeah, they absolutely did. And I, so I'm so glad that you, like me, are, are on board for this because I'm really excited to see where it goes. And I mean, I'm definitely interested. Listeners, if you're like a hardcore Final Fantasy fan or Final Fantasy VII Universe fan and you've got more backstory you can explain and connections to draw from this game and the rest of the universe, hit me up, hit me and Paul up on Twitter because I want to hear all your theories and everything from now on. Cause that's going to be fun, man. Like we're going to get to like spend a couple years like imagining what could happen because we just don't know. Like I'm personally, I'll tell you, I want red 13. I want a lot more of his story. I would love to dig into that one in depth. Um, I thought it was cool how we implemented him in this game actually also like he's not a playable character. I when I first heard that because that came out like a month before the game, I was like, "He's not a playable character. Why? He's an actual character. Why would you?" Not? I think he's better now because now I you only have three playable characters at any point, and Red Thirteen, and he's going to be in the cutscenes, so he's still there, but he's just adds to an already hectic battle. He does, and he like throws out heals for you. You get to watch him doing his thing. It's fun. He's amazingly animated. He talks, of course, and has some great banter. So. Yeah, he, he was a blast. Um, it, favorite boss fights. Any favorite boss fights? So games are known for their boss fights, and there are some amazing-looking ones in here. Which ones hit the spot for you? Genova, uh, okay. end of Chapter 17. Well, near the end of Chapter 17. And that was a that was a half-hour-long grind. And that was just me just chipping away at this at Genova for so long, fighting the tentacle and going back to Genova and just doing what I could, timing, trying to stagger her. And then, you know, healing at the same time. And that was also a battle where I realized I reverted completely to the way I used to play Final Fantasy. How do you do that in an action RPG? Well, in the other one, I would put Aerith in the back, in the back. I keep wanting to call her Aerith, but Aerith. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> uh, so I put her, I'd put her in the back row and just heal and use her magic. I'd buff her out with materia and level her, uh, magic power up. And then she'd be just a boss. She'd just be a destroyer with magic. I did the exact same thing without even thinking about it. I didn't know, realize I was doing that, but I played exactly the same way. I had the same mechanics. I mean, the same strategy, but different mechanics in a real R- action RPG this time. I mean, that was fun to realize. Oh, I, this is still familiar, but I'm totally every second of every moment. Like he said, when you hit the X button and you slow everything down. Oh, I, sometimes I stop to just watch the fight and yeah, I'd get hit by something like, oh, that's pretty. Boom. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. I know. I actually, that's how I beat the fight too, is I put her back and cast Arcane Ward and I just magicked the heck out of Genova, um, and used clouds like triple slash to take out all the tentacles until eventually wore her down and killed her. I think my favorite fight in the game was probably Hell House. So <gasps> yes, Hell House is like a meme. Hellhouse is like this random enemy. And this is one of the cool things about this game is like all this stuff is like these are random battles that you would, you know, get in in Hellhouse, you know, was very rare random battle you could find. And it was like big joke. You're fighting a house. How dumb is that? But this game like explains it. It has a narrative reason for why you're fighting the house. I think that's brilliant. And that whole Coliseum section is absolutely awesome. Like the presentation and the announcers and like you're fighting all of these normal monsters and people. And then boom, a house, a house. And it's a really badass house. 
And it's actually challenged because it switches up its elements on you and it's big and it can just come like <laughs> jump on top of you and fly around. And it's, it was just visually, it was so much fun. Um, I've heard it's absolutely a nightmare in hard mode that it, because in hard mode, like things get extra abilities and, um, of course they're different attacks and stuff. So I'm not really looking forward to that, to be honest, but, <laughs> but it's super cool and fun in the Coliseum. I also love, um, something very simple like enemy like that caterpillar robot thing that you fight in chapter 17 oh, yeah like that's just like a normal little pixelated enemy in final fantasy 7 but because it's made into a boss in this game on the screen dude it looks incredible like the fight itself was nothing mind-blowing to me but just the visual of that centipede thing flying around was so so cool uh so that was that was probably one of my faves uh, I love seeing Cass, uh, Kate Sith, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. Totally shocking moment when the plates are falling and like there's just rubble everywhere and then Kate Sith, boom, shows up in the scene, uh, in the cinematic and like, uh, you know, offers this incredible sigh and it just, it's like a nod to fans and you're like, okay, I know that character's coming. I love that character and I can't wait to see it or I don't like that character in some people's case. I don't know why. I love all cats. I don't care. So, uh, I'm excited about Kate Sith. Other stuff, man. Story moments. Anything that, like, what what resonated with you the most? Well, the uh, the plate collapse. Because in the very first game, everything has the graphics are so low res, and there's no real way to emote things. You don't really get the full weight of everything. Here, you get to see people just NPCs as you walk by them in total despair. You really feel the weight of what happened. It feels so much more real. And then as you're climbing out of the uh, slums, out of the Sector 7, into the into the upper plate, you get to see all the devastation. Everything is so much more real. and It's more impactful because everything's has a human component to it. Yeah, I would I mean, totally agree. Like, it was your glue, eyes are glued to the screen. Your emotions are in overdrive because the character deaths that you have experienced already on a personal level... And the exhaustion you feel after that battle with Reno and Rude, which is a big challenge, to be honest, um, for a lot of people. And then you don't save it. Like, you're the hero, man. And, like, even if you know it's coming, I think there's something special about storytelling. And this is what makes movies that we've seen over and over again able to be watched and rewatched, is if the storytelling at a base level is built correctly if it if it grows with you as characters then by the time you get there you cannot stop yourself you are uncontrollably feeling this thing and that's what happens with this play collapse and of course the graphics like you said I, it just it just makes it so much huger um, and so much bigger when it's that cinematic but it's it's powerful like you know what the loss is and your characters have failed essentially and what do they got to do? Because they're heroes, they got to get back up. They got to fight through their loss. They got to cry about it, scream about it. And they do. They do those very real things. And then they got to keep going. Yep. Because they're the only ones that can. And I love that because this game is a self-contained story. But yet, like we said, it ends with this ability to go forward. And now Sephiroth knows, like... He's trying to keep things the same. Like he's all about that because he, he knows like he can win and do certain things if 
it stays the same, but like he wants to bring this meteor down and blow up the planet and, and get all powerful and all this anime stuff. But like now he doesn't, like he can't control that anymore. And so it's, uh, it's just so good. I, I loved everything. I, I had such a hard time, like trying to pick a favorite girl. I loved them all. Oh, what did you think about Walmart? Uh, just in general, like you mentioned how small of a part that is, but it's very famous because of the cloud cross-dressing scene. I wondered, did you enjoy the, the new version of that? It felt like a bleak, like the darkest timeline version, like maybe the Biff from Back to the Future, like Las Vegas feel. It just felt very nightmarish and horrible. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is, this is, this is seedy. This is truly seedy. I think that yeah, was red, tra- light, red light district for sure. Oh yeah. So it was a lot of fun though, because every character had a personality. The guy who sold you materia, I mean, he looked like Tommy Chong. Like they were just, <laughs> And everything had a lot more personality. I mean, for, you know, a lot of characters are in despair outside of Walmart, but here you get to see a lot more dimension, a lot more of the range of eccentric characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually pretty impressed and, and, you know, encouraged and proud of Square, honestly, because they took what was a very memorable kind of black spot on their resume with the whole cross-dressing scene. It was played for, like a laugh as if cloud was lesser than for wearing this dress. And they made it into this very empowering event where cloud owns it. And, you know, Andrea says at the end of it, something about like gender, not being a construct and basically saying like, if this is about dancing, like dancing is fine. Like it doesn't matter if you're a boy, if you're a girl, if you're wearing a dress, if you're not wearing a dress, if you're enjoying yourself and having fun and dancing, then you're fine and you're good. And that's great. Be who you want to be and just go for it. And they handled it with a lot of care, I thought, um, and in a very progressive way. And whether you agree with them or not, I appreciate the fact that it doesn't alienate people. Uh, it really doesn't. Like it, it is inclusive. And, you know, that's what we want. You want people to be able to experience your game and not feel like it's taking shots at them personally because of their lifestyle choices. And I thought it did that in a really, really brilliant way and a really cool little mini game some of these mini games we should have talked about this in non-spoilers probably but the mini games are like i got a love-hate relationship with them uh the button pressing ones <laughs> so many attempts so many oh attempts. man the, I, I gave up on the chip one i was like it's three in the morning i can't do this i just can't because that's just the dance dance revolution for my thumb and i just i don't have that kind of talent yeah i gotta go back to that one i did the Squass one, I got that one finally knocked out like you did. I I went back and I have been playing some post game stuff. So I mastered the dancing one. You have to do a certain certain sequence with the dancing one. And it's kind of annoying because to get everything, you know, you might have to like reload a little further back and all this stuff. So you gotta kinda pay attention to guides if you want to do some of the post game new game plus trophy hunting. But it's fun, um, nonetheless. Well, anything else on spoilers that you wanted to mention? Uh Jeez, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, other than I didn't expect, I think you hit the nail on the head perfectly. The whole name, Final Fantasy VII Remake, it now has so many different interpretations. It, it like at first it sounds like the laziest name of all time. Now it feels like, oh, we have just completely clean slated this whole thing. Now we're free, yeah. like the character said. Now we've great going to the great unknown. Now nobody knows where this is going. Absolutely, I love that. That was the final shot of the game the final text talking about going into the unknown and it's like yep 
we're all in the same boat now. Nobody can say they know where it's going. And we all get to look forward to it and dread or whatever it equally, I guess, at this point. All right. Well, let's wrap that up. Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it as always. 